From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable. Coming to you from Beijing. I'm He Yang. Good to have you for this ride. Urban green space, such as parks, woods, streams, green rooftops, and community gardens, provides critical ecosystem services. Green space also promotes physical activity, psychological well-being, and the general public health for urban residents. We take a look at the advantages and challenges of urban green space for public health, urban planning, and the environment. Environment. And mermaid diving and underwater photography associated with it have made a splash in China in recent years, even before the latest Disney movie *The Little Mermaid* came out. We try to find answers to bubbling questions about what attracts mer people to mermaiding. For today's program, I'm joined by Li Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. First on today's show. More than ever, cities have understood the benefits of green spaces. Studies all over the world have shown that these areas of grass, trees, and other vegetation set apart for recreational or aesthetic purposes are good for the eyes and heart, mind and soul. But the planning and management of urban green spaces are complicated, involving social, cultural, and economic factors. Urban greening is given more urgency for that it is an effective mitigation option for. Climate change in urban areas. So let's take a look at what's going on now. You gotta give credit to city management on various levels, because we have seen major improvements in China. But there are some problems that exist too. You are right. There are some problems because, according to China Comment, which is a news outlet sponsored by Xinhua News Agency, they recently sent out some reporters to really investigate. 
and to see how cities across China are doing in terms of the planning and the management of urban greening. While overall the situation is is pretty good, however, there still remain some problems that are eager to be solved. First of all, is a lot of cities they only seek novelty and really following the trend in terms of urban greening. You know, there there are even like internet famous plants when it comes to urban greening. However, we know that really when when it comes to planting different flowers and trees, you have to make sure they are native to these places. However, due to certain trends that cities and local authorities are trying to follow. They instead, you know, trying to introduce more foreign、uh, species to their own cities, and、um, they become really a trend. For example, there has been a craze for a plant called Lanhuaying, and the name of it is really Jacaranda, and、uh, it really has blue and purple flowers. But the thing is that it's native to tropical and subtropical regions of the America, not China. However, right now you can see a lot of cities are planting and introducing this kind of plant in their own region because maybe they think that's simply beautiful. However, such plants really like warm and humid and sunny climates, and which make they don't really grow very well in some cities in China. And eventually, they may be just dying and resulting in certain waste of these plants. And also, according to a research from Chongqing University, they studied tree species used in urban greening in the Yangtze River region in 2022, and they found that nearly 40% of the trees used in 11 major cities are the same. However, we know you know these cities could have different climates and natural environment. However, they are still embracing the、um, basically same and very trendy species.、Mm-hmm. So that's one problem. Yes. And Josh, what are some of the other prominent Problems that have arisen with urban greening these days. Well, one of the other issues is that there's sometimes an investment of a lot of money into flowers and trees from different climate zones, and this can be、um, described as overseeking bright colors, constructing beautiful scenery. And there's obviously consequences to this,、um, or building things like flower valleys, flower seas. Flower anything really? I guess you could build leaf forests, single ecological structures, etc. And sometimes the larger the better. And、um, this can sometimes only be to pursue new attractions and new landscapes.、Um, and I, I guess that this can come with some issues as well.、Um, well, sometimes having so many flowers and to arrange them in a way that's mainly pleasing to the eye, but not really good for the environment, could be an issue. And also, I don't know if this is only in China, but、um, you know, during certain holidays,、uh, it's a common scene in Chinese cities to have these like huge floral arrangements. And they've been seen as a very good way to show or boost the celebratory atmosphere of the city. And I don't know if you have these kind of arrangements in the UK as well.、Um, every time when I see these seas of flowers, I wonder how much water is being used. Where did all these flowers come from? Also.、Um, After doing this show, and we've discussed it on the show as well about more and more people saying that, oh, maybe I have allergic reactions that I didn't used to have when I was younger or whatnot, 
And then it made me think, is it that all these plants and flowers as such that have been introduced to our cities might have something to do with it? So thoughts, Josh? I think you bring up a good point about ethically sourcing the plants and obviously the amount of maintenance that is required. And this is definitely one of the downsides to developing these green urban spaces. And I think some of the major downsides are the process of development can obviously result in some of the opposite effects of what the urban space is supposed to do, which is, of course, to make the environment better for everybody and hopefully for the planet as well. So, I mean, just to focus on your point about ethically sourcing flowers and stuff, I know that in the United Kingdom, many public parks and green spaces are managed by local authorities and they have to adhere to quite strict guidelines that promote the use of ethically sourced flowers, for example, ethically sourced plants, for example. We have, most of our societies have royal in front of them still, and we have the Royal Horticultural Society. So horticultural obviously being anything to do with plants and flowers. And this has developed a set of guidelines uh, for strong cultivation. For example, using locally produced plants and seeds wherever possible to reduce carbon emissions, avoiding the use of pesticides and chemicals, sourcing plants from reputable suppliers who follow ethical and environmental principles, etc. But one point which has also been mentioned today, which is one thing that sometimes cannot be predicted, is these invasive species. And I've got some quite interesting examples, uh, which I hope we can talk about today. But the UK has actually struggled with this. Um, because as you know, the UK is quite a cold climate. And we like to import many produce, including flowers and plants that are from warmer climates. And sometimes this can really have a negative effect on our green spaces and just the environment in general. I think China is pretty much faced with similar situation here in terms of species invasion, because China has also a long list of invasive species. And uh, as far as I know, you know, in Guizhou, just one province in Guizhou, according to a general survey from 2014 to 2019, there are over 200 invasive species solely in Guizhou. And I know one example would be a species or a plant called Wei Ganju, and it is also known as bitter wine or American rope. And it's actually a widespread weed in the tropical regions and it's native to the, the subtropical zones of North, Central, and South America. And now it has been listed as one of 100, I would say, invasive species in the world. And it's also one of the first batch of invasive species in China. Mm. You know, the thing is that. The process of uh, this species coming to China was also related to urban greening because uh, this species was introduced in China in the in a botanical garden in Hong Kong in the late 19th century. So basically, that's the way it was introduced. And uh, I guess at that time, people introduced this species as a way to appreciate its beauty and try to, you know, maybe create more diversity in terms of urban greening. However, it really caused a problem because in its hometown, you know, where the species was native, there are over 160 uh, insects and fungus to really suppress the expansion of this population because it can really grow like wild. But obviously in China, we don't really have its natural enemy. So that's why when people really introduce this foreign species, you can't really suppress its expansion. And uh, 
it has caused a problem in more cities in southern China in the later years. And also in the year of 2017, it invaded Guizhou. So you see, that's one example of how, you know, maybe unscientific urban greening can really cause problem in terms of creating species invasion. Yeah, this is kind of like the unintended consequence to something that was of good intention. Having flowers in your city all four seasons, whole year round, isn't that just great in Beijing? We can't afford that luxury because in wintertime, it's just way too cold. But in some of the warmer cities in China, why not? So is introducing invasive species into this environment always a bad thing? Because it sounds like it's almost inevitable sometimes because, well, maybe the natural environment of one city simply doesn't have enough green. And therefore, you want to make it better. How do you make it better? And then sometimes these consequences can't be avoided. But a lot of times it kind of just happens. Um, I wonder how do we make of this basically practical and reality that we are already facing. Josh, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that it is a real challenge because ultimately the, the ecosystem is extremely delicate, mm. right? And we have to be very careful with it. And one slight change in the ecosystem, a slight rise in temperature, slight decrease in temperature, things can change dramatically. Cities are a bit of a phenomenon, I think, in to some degree, because cities have changed it's almost like got its own micro climate its own micro biodiversity in itself so there are a lot of examples around the world where cities have created an artificial climate that is is that still considered an urban green space i mean one example i can think of is the royal botanical gardens in london um and this has over 50,000 living plants and but of course, some of the centers there are for botanical research, and it's not all quote unquote natural. So sometimes you can bring in new species that could be potentially invasive, depending on how they're taken care of and looked after. What needs to be considered is whether this is done quite recklessly. Sometimes it cannot be predicted, but I think these days we do have the technology that's going to allow us to predict it to a greater degree. Um, so it has to be done very carefully. And to be honest, a, a lot of the time, this means that it costs a lot of money and often the taxpayers money. And it also requires talents who really know what they're doing in the field, which yeah. aren't that many people who would, you know, devote their lifetime to studying, for example, you know, plants and uh, flowers as such. So you really need those um, professionals to be sort of guiding and uh, at the helm, so to speak. But I wonder how often that happens. Yes, I think, as you said, uh, I mean, education is really important because, you know, I remember a few years ago, I had a chance to talk with certain um, horticulture professors in China and also from other countries. They told me that actually a lot of popular way of managing urban plants here in China back a few years ago was really not the perfect standard of beauty in their eyes. For example, the layers of colors as we 
actually can see right now in a lot of cities in China. I mean, uh, red, yellow, and purple. Maybe in the eyes of some people, they consider it as a beauty. However, in the eyes of professional people. They don't really think that's a very scientific way of managing plants, and、mm. also to provide really、uh, beauty to、uh, regular people and, and I mean regular residents. Because you also need to educate people. I mean, why we are bringing these plants here? It's not only for appreciation. It's also about what they can do for the whole ecosystem, and especially when it comes to urban greening. I mean, we are you know trying to promote urban green spaces to some extent to. Maybe do better for the overall environment because cities are really vulnerable to heat island effect,、mm -hmm. and somehow to introduce more plants and flowers can help mitigate that problem. So it's really important to think about. I mean, the best environment certain plants can live, and what kind of consequences they can bring to. The current environment, and that needs really education. I think that's a good point, but I also, I mean, it's always good to educate the general public. But I wonder, really, does everybody need to know、um, the the science behind planting this flower as opposed to the next one? Not necessarily, in my opinion. It's getting the right people. On board in making these important decisions. That's also what's needed. It shouldn't be that just some guy who happens to be in the position to make these decisions and think, "Oh, it'd be nice to have some big trees over there. Let's plant them there." It shouldn't be made. The decision shouldn't be made that way. It would be good if you can include specialists on board to help you in making that decision before it's too late. And that's also another issue with urban planning, or you know, the lack of better use of these green spaces. That is, once once the Deed has been done. It might be difficult to reverse it, and also it might take a few years to reverse it. And、um, maybe you've got another batch of decision makers in. And is this project going to continue, or is it just going to be derailed? And you know, a lot of these administrative or bureaucratic issues could happen within the government as such. So. So yes, when we talk about urban planning, it's actually quite a difficult thing to tackle sometimes. And also, speaking of big trees, there was a time in China when we used to think that big trees are always good. Why not just plant more trees? But as you've probably get the sense on today's show, it's not so simple、um, in just saying that let's do that because. That could also backfire. Having big trees. Yes, actually, it's not always the larger the better in terms of planting trees, especially in cities. And actually, this is new knowledge for me because I learned that China has really strict restriction on the entry of large. Trees, especially when they are coming to cities, and there's a unit of measurement called dBh, which is also diameter at breast height. It's a way to decide and measure the size of a tree. And according to relevant policies here in China, we don't really allow those trees with dBh of more than twenty. Centimeters or more into city because we want to actually keep those big trees in their original birthplace because maybe I guess authorities think it took a long time for those trees to grow really big and it's really important to respect their、um, 
their nature and not to really move those big trees to new places, and which can cause potential problem. However, according to relevant data, there are over 261 trees with a DBH exceeding 20 centimeter nearby a new residential area in the city in western China, and that accounts for nearly one fifth of the total number of trees. Mm-hmm. So you see, we are not really doing the best right now. And uh, obviously, I think it's a new knowledge. And uh, we got to let more people, especially as you said, policymakers in the position of deciding what kind of plants or trees they are about to introduce when it comes to urban greening to really have a more scientific way of managing all those plants and trees. Yeah, I think we're at the stage that um, we've passed the initial scratching the surface, let's just make it look good phase. Now let's talk about how to actually make a difference, talk about quality and uh, look at the new problems that kind of arise um, when it's sometimes a bit reckless or careless decisions that have been made and we're dealing with some of the consequences now. And both of you have touched upon briefly the benefits that green spaces bring to our cities. And Josh, could you elaborate on that idea? There are a multitude of benefits to having green spaces in cities. And I think if you just if we just first look at some of the the nicest cities in the world to live in with the highest standards of living and the rates of happiness and all this stuff, if you look at those cities, almost all of them have really good well-maintained green urban spaces and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it improves physical and mental health studies have found that people who have access to green cities they have lower levels of stress obviously higher levels of physical activity and then consequently better mental health and there's also something quite important in the city called the urban heat island effect i think we've discussed this on the show before actually yep and obviously these green urban spaces, they mitigate this effect. So basically what this means is that the green spaces, um, they offset cities being artificially warm. So too warm, actually, um, than the surrounding rural areas. This is due to an absorption of heat by buildings and other urban surfaces, usually dark surfaces and things like this. This can be really damaging to the environment and really bad for the residents as well. Supporting biodiversity, new animals and new plants. Of course, there is the risk of the invasive species, as we've discussed, but also there's the potential for new species to come and thrive, which can be a, a great thing for biodiversity. And I think the most, one of the most important things here mm-hmm. is community building. And I also think that community engagement is actually really important for the maintenance of a successful green urban space. I think that the surrounding community has to be really engaged in it. And I know in China, when I've been to parks in cities that, in my opinion, are some of the best ones, they're always quite busy and they're frequented by people. You'll have people running in them. They'll have areas for sports. They'll just have a way to really engage the whole community, areas to relax and buy food and drink, etc. So I think this is really important as well and a massive benefit for the city. And I think, you know, to have more understanding of what is the scientific management of uh, urban greening is not only about, you know, to have more plants in the cities and we can really live a better place. I mean, for individuals, that can also be important to us because, I mean, almost everybody are planting certain 
plants at the balcony of their apartment, I guess. And maybe we already have the luxury to really plant our yards in the cities. But I mean, we do, we are all involved in sort of indoor gardening. And, uh, you know, that's when we can really rethink about the way we define plants, rethink about the way we see plants. I mean, it's time to rethink that concept. You know, we don't really not treat plants as sort of uh, ornamental objects that provide maybe visual beauty to us. It's also about thinking I mean, respect them and to treat them as an, an essential part of the whole ecosystem and uh, trying to see what they can bring to maybe your apartment and uh, to the overall environment. Because sometimes to introduce wrong species and especially species that, that are not native to your cities can involve the more usage of pesticides or even fertilizer because they simply can't rely on themselves to sustain in a better way. So that eventually could also cause pollution and that could just cause harm for everybody. Yeah, again, uh, what you just said, Li Yi, it's really important for people to understand. So many times when on the surface at a glance, you think this is a good deed for the environment and then you dig deeper and you realize that's not the case at all this reminds me of another example you know golf courses usually they're seen as oh so beautiful Mm -hmm. perfectly manicured lawns uh golf courses and uh that's got to be good for the environment and for your health right and then also Golfing is still considered as quite an elite and expensive sport in this country But you know what? The golf course is packed and filled with pesticides. Mm. And as beautiful as it looks, but if you're living off a golf course right next to it, might not be the perfect place to be um, as opposed to what it might appear to be. So there's a lot, I think, studying and knowledge that comes with it. And it's important that we deal with it the right way. And I suppose that's kind of the takeaway of this discussion. Coming up during the second half of the show, we discuss a growing industry of mermaiding. And how fascinating is that? We'll be back after this break. Go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to Roundtable with myself, He Young. I'm joined by Li Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Coming up, we turn to a growing industry to make people's mermaid dreams a reality. Mermaiding, or mermaid diving, was first certified in China in 2019. Now, people around the world of all shapes, sizes, gender expressions, ages, and levels of ability in the water are finding this as a sport, profession, or calling. We take a deep dive in it. And Neuralink, 
Elon Musk's brain chip startup has recently received U.S. regulatory approval for human trials. Is this type of technology able to plug a computer into your brain and download your memories into a robot? Well, you gotta listen to the show to find out. For our podcast listeners, you can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcast. Keep sending us your comments, thoughts, and questions to ezfmroundtable at foxmail.com. Your voice could be featured in the show in our heart-to-heart segment. Now on Roundtable, as we continue today's discussion, Disney's live-action remake of The Little Mermaid. Has received a mixed bag of viewer responses since its release. Regardless of its box office performance worldwide, Google search data reveals that online searches for various terms related to mermaid style have exploded. Besides fashion and makeup trends, mermaiding or mermaid diving is making new waves. So. Is mermaiding pretty much underwater cosplay? <laughs> What are we talking about here? Um, I think mermaiding is actually a form of free diving. So it's actually a serious way of free diving. I guess that is really beautiful. So that's why a lot of people are taking this chance to really show their own beauty and to really involve in photography. And in fact, mermaid divers don't really wear a tank or use any external aids except for their mermaid. Tail, and professional mermaid performers actually need to keep balance and overcome the resistance and coldness underwater, and they have to use their core muscles and arms to control their bodies. So you see, that's a serious sport event, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, so a lot of people, especially young girls, they are particularly passionate about mermaiding because you can really enjoy yourself as a beautiful princess、uh, when you know doing that kind of sport event. And I guess that also has something to do with the popularization of mermaid culture. I mean, modern mermaid diving has its roots and takes its leads from mermaid legends, and the mermaid diving interests are at least partially influenced by. Certain legends, and they are really common in many cultures around the world. And now, especially with the new version of Disney's The Little Mermaid, I guess a new craze of mermaiding or mermaid diving has just went back. Yeah, I saw this in the news in China in the last couple of years, and also in the U.S. Now, mermaiding is. A growing industry, and people are really serious about this. Josh, have you noticed this latest trend with young people underwater? I'll be honest, I haven't noticed it until I was told to read about it for this show. Yeah, I don't know why this <laughs> went over my head. Maybe it's because I have absolutely no interest in the movie, or <laughs> I don't know why it is. I just completely missed it. And I'm I'm online a lot. I mean, my job requires me to be、mm. engaged, so I must have. The algorithm must have bypassed me completely, and、um, this is—I've seen people in these suits before, underwater,、um, right? I love swimming,、uh, I, but I, you know, I don't know what it is. It's the first I've really heard of.、This. Yeah, crazy. Well,、um, you mentioned you have no interest in the movie. Let's just sidebar a little bit on that, because.、Uh, <laughs> yeah, this used to be one yeah, of my、sure. favorite fairy tales when I was a little girl. But once you grow a little bit older and you understand what the story is about, 
It's kind of about a young woman changing her core identity to please a man, and watching that movie, it's this、uh, bland white guy leaving all your family and friends behind for that. Startling. Isn't that every Disney storyline? Basically, yes. Aren't they trying to change that?、Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I so, don't know. <clears throat> yeah. So,、uh, yeah, you know my thoughts on that.、Um, but mermaiding is no easy task, and Li Yi, you make such a great case for the difficulties of becoming a mermaid. And in fact, only for a few seconds, I would think, because there's no oxygen tank that this person's carrying, because that just spoils the fantasy, right? <laughs> so you're you're trying to hold your breath, and you're trying to control the tail with your bound legs in it, and also trying to keep your facial expression presentable. And don't forget, there's a professional. Underwater photographer there too to capture the moment. Otherwise, what's the point of this, right? Isn't this to get the magical or the perfect picture? And while all of this is happening behind the scene, yeah, I think you know if you consider everything has to be perfect, as you know, you have to behave like a princess. I mean, a real mermaid underwater, and you have to think about the、uh, the photographer. Of course, it can be difficult, but maybe in the eyes of professional divers, they don't really consider mermaid diving as a very difficult or、oh. a challenging task,、Good、and、uh, they somehow consider it as a event that is friendly to beginners、oh. because they are saying that the threshold of this mermaiding is rather low because <laughs> you are only required to dive to five meters a max and which is easier than other diving projects and、uh, for example there is a diving coach in china named ray she said it only took her a week to obtain the certificate of mermaid diving in sunya hainan province so I don't really have an experience of diving or scuba, but I guess that's a pretty short period of time when consider you know taking courses and obtaining certain certificates. But as you said, I think for a lot of outsiders, it can be impressive when you see some people wearing certain costumes,、uh, if we can call it as a costume,、mm. and re- really trying to hold your breath underwater for a long time, right? You know, I'm still thinking. When I heard this thing, mermaiding, I thought it was like something like catfishing, where people were online pretending <laughs> to be mermaids to、you、like can't be you know, more meet、wrong. people online. <laughs> But I mean, the more I hear about it, the more it just sounds like people getting photo opportunities and they're just diving with mermaid suits on. I mean, I you say I just it, you know, what an offense. Scuba diving's different, though. <laughs> scuba diving's different. I mean, sure, there's photo ops there, but scuba diving is. Like you're supposed to be down there for a long time, and it's more about finding things to see, you know, like fish and stuff, right? So,、um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know what the. This sounds like a phase to me. I don't think this is something that's gonna, gonna、uh, last. The you know, obviously long, have not checked the link that I sent you. There are all these pictures. I checked the link. I've looked at many links. I've been looking at pictures, and I'm looking at the link right now. I mean. Yeah. Do you see the pictures? Pretty cool. <laughs> it's here in China and it's in the U.S. as well. And like, 
people of all professions. It's not in the UK because it's too cold. I'm from a seaside town where I swim all the time, and you could you be just mermaiding in the sea. You just wouldn't come back. <laughs> Yes. And here in China, it's actually something that there are specific associations that give out certificates to certify people in doing this. So it's good to have these civil sort of organizations trying to regulate this in a way, isn't it? Yes, because as I said, you know, if you have looked at those research, it's actually a real sport it event. It is, that Josh. Certain, certain <laughs> skills, and uh, it's better to you know, hey, take certain I'm, courses. I'm sorry, I'm taking nothing away from the people doing this. It, it looks like a very difficult skill. And yeah, it is. I used to yeah, yeah. swim competitively, and sometimes we have to do this movement underwater after mm. you dive, right? This, yeah. like, you keep your feet together, and it's really hard. It's really hard. I yeah. was never very good at it, so... Yeah. Big respect to to this sport, and yeah. and that artificial oh did I just say that tail that people are wearing that weighs a lot, and also you know the whole costume. And actually, there are great variations as such. There's the classic aerial um, costume with the seashell bikini, pretty much. And there oh, and there are mermen, the yes. men who do this. Yes, they, it's they really impressive. They don't wear a top and. Uh, Yes, yeah, so you know, like it's really athletic and sporty people who are pretty ripped. Who, well, you know what? You don't need to feel like you have to be ripped to have license in doing this. Just you know, be safe. But also, um, you know, <laughs> Josh is like, no, just embrace your inner mermaid. <laughs> yeah, that's all you've got to do. <laughs> embrace in your inner somewhere. mermaid, huh? Yeah. Lee is trying to like talk uh, some rationality. I'm trying to, you know, proceed in the show, yeah, and yeah. you guys are no, like, no, well, we're going <laughs> other where. We're mermaiding to other places. It's okay. Yeah. As long as you're happy. <laughs> yeah, so, and apparently this is gaining momentum in China. And Lee, what's the story there? Well, as you said, I think mermaiding has been popular in China since about the year 2019. And there are certain courses that are offered by professional or official organization. I mean, diving organization, for example, there's Paddy is one of several groups that offer formal mermaid training here in China. And according to the global director of this organization, actually, this board is going like wildfire here in China. And not only young people are taking this event, also a lot of elder people, because this event, there isn't really an age limit uh, to take part in this sport event. So basically, everybody can, as long as they're healthy, and maybe I would say under 60 or 65, and they can just participate in certain courses and obtain those certificates. And also, as you said, it's very exciting to see not only women are engaging in this mermaid diving. I mean, here in China, actually, there are male mermaids. Although, you know, when speaking of mermaid or maiden in Chinese, there are certain gender denotation. You think about girls. You think about beautiful ladies, but actually it can also be an event for boys who are crazy about diving or mermaid diving. And there's even a national male mermaid competition here in China. And so it's becoming more popular and it has been more accepted by more people that we can have mermaids of both genders as long as they enjoy it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would try it myself. I don't, I would be super proud if I was able to do this pretty well I think I mean 
the amount of athleticism that it takes and swimming is is an art i think and to be able to dive like this and swim in that way i don't think that anybody who's doing this well um would should be ashamed in any way they're probably not because i don't think most people could do this so gracefully maybe you could i mean for the photo opportunity i guess all you have to do is sort of go under the water and float a bit right but i i i don't think that's the case i think most people that are doing this are probably pretty athletic and good swimmers so hats off to them i'm sure they don't need much encouragement yeah just embrace your inner mermaid right and i just keep doing your thing yeah, I just think it's a lot of work, you know, uh, for that beautiful picture. And I've seen a lot of them online. It's quite magical. But I just keep on thinking about, you know, right after taking that picture, after snapping that photo, the fantasy kind of falls apart. And, uh, you know, it's just these are hardworking people. And uh, yeah, anyhow, so um in addition to all of this, this is actually quite an expensive hobby to have. And it's only a very, very small number of people who can actually make a buck out of it. So, but all that money spent is essentially what's supporting this nascent industry, so to speak. So, Lee, could you give us some information on how big or how valuable this industry is? Well, as you have mentioned, when you are engaged in mermaid diving compared with regular diving, actually, you could spend more money in terms of your outfit. I mean, that tail, it can be really expensive sometime. And uh, there are certain data showing that mermaid tail industry alone is currently worth almost 150 million US dollars a year. So think about how much money people could spend in buying those beautiful tails. And in addition to the tails, there's also the cost of classes. I mean, to take those certain courses to obtain certain certificate of mermaid diving can be expensive too. You know, for example, even casual mermaids can often spend thousands of dollars on classes. And there are also accessories like crowns and fox seashell tops. And of course, those tails can easily cost 5000 to 10000 US dollar or more, as we have mentioned. Um, but I think for those mermaid lover, maybe it's really not a big cost because it's really about pursuing their love and pursuing their passion. So as long as they're embracing their own mermaid, that's good, I guess. Yeah, inner mermaid. I didn't know I had one in me. Um, yeah, but those numbers that you cited, Li Yi, um, some of them came from the US. And uh, I just think this is another opportunity for the um, manufacturers in Yiwu because <laughs> a lot of this equipment and accessories and things I think uh, most possibly can be produced at um, a pretty affordable price but you know quality is also worth our attention here you know so good and uh, and affordable <laughs> always uh, always the mantra here um, anyway so coming up next Elon Musk's brain chip startup Neuralink announced that it has received the green light from the U.S. regulators for inhuman study. What does it mean? Will it turn a person into a cyborg? Stay tuned to find out more on that. Looking for passion? How about fiery debate? Want to hear about current events in China from different perspectives? 
Then tune in to Roundtable, where East meets West, and understanding is the goal. It's the hour of Roundtable with myself, He Young. I'm joined by Li Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Recently, Neuralink, the brain implant company co-founded by Elon Musk, announced that it has received approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, and is now poised to embark on human clinical trials. Well, Elon Musk's company can now drill holes in humans to test brain implant technology. Um, so tell us, what has the U.S. FDA given approval of exactly here? Yes, as you said, on May 26th, Neuralink, which is the brain implant company co-founded by Elon Musk, announced that they have had a significant development, which is the company has received approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. I guess the significance of this news is that actually the company has been developing a device surgically inserted into the brain by a robot and capable of decoding brain activity and linking it to computers. Up until now, the company has conducted research only in animals. But previously, I guess the FDA highlighted several concerns that Neuralink needs to address before conducting clinical trials on humans. Um, these include whether the device's battery and implanted wires would move within the brain. And also there are challenges of safely removing the device without damaging brain tissue. But now I guess um, we've seen approval from the US Food and Drug Administration. So the company basically consider it as a major milestone for the course they are doing. And uh, currently Neuralink has started on Twitter that they have not yet started recruiting patients for clinical trials, but they will soon release more updates. I guess the whole world is really watching their uh, movement and um, yeah for me I think that's pretty scary because you know thinking about um, having some computer or machine to be access to your brain and that just reminds me of previous animation or TV dramas where human consciousness can really be uploaded and preserved by certain uh, events and yeah. activities and during this show and tell session um, Elon Musk pretty much, well, showed in a video that it is drilling a hole into your skull and implanting a chip via a robotic arm to do this. And Josh, what are your thoughts? Shocking well, or very much welcome? It's terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> oh, okay, good. <laughs> it's just absolutely terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I think that we can talk about the potential pros and cons, the, the benefits that this may provide. And I think there seriously could be ones, but honestly, I think on ultimately it all comes down to one's faith in humanity. And it depends how we as the human race are gonna utilize this technology because it has the potential to really help many people. It has the potential to solve a lot of issues, AI, overall has the potential to solve a lot of huge, huge issues in society. Um, and, you know, it really depends how we want to use it. It also has the potential to completely destroy us and ruin society. So I, I think it just depends on your faith in humanity at this point. That, that's my opinion of it. I don't know if that's too negative or cynical, but I, that's how I feel about it overall. But I do think there's a lot of 
positive changes that might be brought about because of such technology. Yeah, it's funny you mention AI because I remember a while ago, Elon Musk was getting all up in arms and saying that, well, we need to curtail the development of AI yeah. 2023. And now he's like, well, I have this company founded in 2016 and we want to drill holes in people's brain. Well, okay, he didn't say that, um, but pretty much brain in a jar kind of idea that uh, you can preserve one's memory or whatnot in a separate computer. And in theory, people can become immortal, like your body could decay, but your thoughts and your ideas and who you are, arguably, can be preserved forever. That's kind of the idea if I, you know, really go so far in saying that. Uh, Lee, could you also help us explain this um, concept but behind it is pretty much the brain-computer interface idea? So... Yeah, what are they trying to do? Sure, so basically this technology brain-computer interface is a computer-based system that acquires brain signals and they will just analyze them and translate them into commands that are related to an output device to carry out desired action. And according to certain news reports, I think now the technology has been used in some way in certain areas. For example, there is non-invasive brain-computer interfaces such as the cap-like devices, and they are commonly seen in sectors like neurology or rehabilitation in hospitals. So they can basically detect brain signals through wearable devices. However, due to signals having to pass through the skull, the resolution of recorded brain signals is not really very high right now. And there's also a so-called invasive approach mm. to use that certain technology. And for me, that's the scary part. But I guess scientists and researchers maybe can design some good use of that technology in the future. I mean, there are certain theories saying that maybe with this kind of technology, we can help blind people, I mean, visually impaired people, to literally, quote unquote, see certain words and images with the help of technology. And also for maybe physically impaired people, they can also use that technology to help them to resume their movement, I mean, physical movement. But that's all the um, expectation for this technology. Yes, well, there is a similar breakthrough involving brain implants by Swiss researchers that have been announced recently. Um, a paralyzed man from the Netherlands was able to walk simply by thinking about it, thanks to a system of implants which wirelessly transmit his thoughts to his legs and feet. But the key difference here is what Lee just mentioned, invasive or non-invasive. And one of the major criticisms towards Elon Musk's venture in this area is basically it's invasive. And if you're serious about doing this, why not invest more in the non-invasive ways of, what are we talking about here? Brain uh, implants or brain chips as such? Well, well, to play devil's advocate here, Elon Musk, whether you believe him or not, 
although he often, because you mentioned something quite interesting earlier, which I also think is a bit of a valid criticism, is that he's constantly pushing this narrative about the dangers of AI, right? And about how it, it could be the end of the world. And the way he talks about it almost seems like he thinks it is. But the reason, and then he still continues to develop it, right? But his argument is that it should be, it's an inevitability, and I guess that he believes that even brain implants of sorts are also an inevitability. And he believes that it should be done, if it's an inevitability, it should at least be done in an ethical way. What he really means is that it should be done his way, which is, you know, so it's, it's whether you think that his way is ethical or not. But I guess he believes that his way of doing things or the way his company are doing things are ethical. So... I mean, I think I agree with him that it's an inevitability. I don't know if brain implants in this way are an inevitability. I guess that I think that it probably is. Um, and I, I guess we just have to see. Um, I don't know. Do you guys also think that this is an inevitability? Do you think that if Elon Musk's company isn't going to do this, that some other company inevitably will? I like to think that it's not inevitable. I mean, don't give up your brain. <laughs> but I don't... Uh, and also just... I mean... Um, yeah, go I ahead. I mean, in, to some degree also, aside from the horror of something physically being in your brain, which I think is quite scary for a lot of people, I think if you get over that, our brains are already being invaded in many ways, right? Mm. With algorithmic marketing and um, <laughs> targeted ads and things like this. And it's so effective now, a lot of the ads that we see in social media and stuff like this on our feed, that, I mean, you could argue that we're already being invaded. Our minds are already being invaded. You could also argue Maybe. that um, our bodies have already been invaded by intrusive yeah. uh, surgery exactly. as such, you mm. know, having, let's say, an artificial hip or a joint. And we're changing or we're redefining what superhuman could be in these days. But when it's our brain, it's almost like the last resort um, that makes us human we probably want to keep it the way it is for the time being. And that brings us to the end of today's roundtable. Thank you so much, Li Yi and Josh Cotterell, for joining the discussion. I'm He Yang. We'll see you next time.